Um, now, before we, we dive in, remember here, uh, the prophet Habakkuk, the, the minor prophet, just means small book, he uh, is crying out to the Lord because he's literally seen his people go from a place of, of the golden age to a place of idol worship, the, the, the kingdom, uh, if you will, the 12 tribes have been split up, the northern tribes have been absorbed, the 10 southern tribes are, are, are falling back into idol worship and away from the Lord, and, and there is violence, and, and, and Habakkuk is crying out. If you remember in the first four verses last week, he's asking God questions. He's, inst- he's, he's started a conversation with the Lord, and he's saying, Lord, how long are you going to allow this to happen? How long is the destruction going to occur? How long will there be violence, strife, contention, wickedness, and perversion? And at some point, we've asked God those questions. Why have you allowed these things? Uh, I think we probably now are, are in that season still where we're wondering how long, how come, what is God doing? And God is going to answer Habakkuk this morning, uh, and it's not going to be the answer he wants. And the title, the, the title of the message uh, this morning is God's No, not K-N-O-W, but No. Sometimes God says no, and sometimes he says yes. He's going to answer Habakkuk, but Habakkuk's not going to necessarily understand the answer. Um, I just want to share with you, before we get into the text a little bit, just, just some, a couple other things in regards to how good God is. First of all, um, wasn't worship great this morning? They did, they did a, a great job, I think. Um, and uh, I shared this in first service, and I have to share it in the second service. Sarah, who uh, led us in worship this morning, she was part of uh, our youth group when I was the youth pastor at our church, and she got saved on a trip to Morro Bay in Andy Finch's house uh, about 10 years ago. And so it's really cool to see, you know, just someone who's grown up in the, the church as a youth and didn't know the Lord and then came to know Jesus, and, and I'm just really blessed by her. And I also mention that because uh, this last week I was, um, I was in Sacramento, and funny thing, you can eat indoors in Sacramento. I don't know if you know that or not. It's incredible. Um, I don't know what's happening here in Nevada County, but um, you, you can eat inside in, in the Bay Area, which is, makes a ton of sense. <laughs> so while we were down there, um, we, uh, I, I was down there for some meetings. Some of you know I, I sit on a, a board that basically oversees 100 churches in Nevada, California, Utah, uh, Guam and Hawaii. And so uh, I sit on this board and I basically help guide our district. And it's, it's been a good opportunity. It hasn't been all fun, to be honest with you. But uh, amongst the board, there's probably 10 of us that represent about 10 churches. And there is another church in Reading that's open like we are. It's called Pathway. Um, I know their pastor uh, decently well. We've become friends. Tremendous guy, awesome dude. And their church is just killing it. And out of, out of that group, the two churches that are really doing well, we are, we're doing really well, and so is Pathway. The other churches are still really struggling. I heard of one church in our district, uh, 35 people in each service because of something that was said that they didn't like. 35 people in one service got up and walked out of each of their services. Uh, those are the kind of things a lot of the churches are dealing with. They just tell you that God is, God is in our midst, and he, he's doing the work, and I don't want it to be lost on you because this seems normal for us because we've been doing this since... We've been inside since November, um, but it isn't normal for everybody else uh, and to be praying for them. In fact, Pathway last week had 40 people come to Jesus for the first time, gave their lives to the Lord last week, which is great. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm blessed to have a, a friendship and a partnership with that church. 
and man, that just as soon as as soon as he was there, we were like two magnets, like shoom. This feels right. This feels good. We're sharing all the things God's doing in our churches, so it, it's it's good. Um, and and so the season that you know the reason we're in this book is because this is a season of 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 hardship and difficulty for a lot of people. It may not be for you, and I know it, for us. Uh, it's almost, it seems weird for me to be around people who are really, really struggling in the season because God has been so good to us. And, and we've got friendship and we've got people and we're seeing people face to face. I can see your faces uh, and, and, and you can see mine. And there's something that happens there in the gathering of being around people that, that God has intended us for. But that isn't always the norm. And outside of this, it may not be the norm for you, whether you're at work and you're required to wear a mask or, or I know if you're working at the hospital, the, the morale of hospitals still isn't great. Um, and, and so there is this, God, how long? What are you doing? Uh, what's happening? And, uh, and yet God's working in the midst. And so if you would, turn to chapter 1, go to verse 5. And uh, if you're new, we like to stand when we read the Word because we love the Word so much. Uh, so if you're able to this morning, would you stand with me as we read these uh, few verses? And then we'll see what God has to say uh, to us this morning. Look among the nations. This is his response. This is God's response to how long are you going to do this, God? What are you doing? There's violence, there's strife. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. More fierce than evening wolves, their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come afar. They fly like, like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up the earth to take it. Then they sweep by like wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Lord, um, yeah, would you speak to us this morning, and would you be near to us? And would you show us who you are, that we would be comforted by your love, comforted by your protection and provision, and that we would be encouraged in you, and that we'd grow to be more like you, Lord. And we trust you for it. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Okay, um, you know, first of all, if you, I mentioned last week, blessed is the man who can find Habakkuk, because um, it is a hard book to find in the Bible. It's a small book. It's a prophetic book, um, and it's, it's, it is kind of hard. Like, this isn't, you know, a lot of times you won't find, you know, pastors or preachers maybe preach on these kind of books or these kind of topics because they're not, they're not cool. They're not fun. They're, they're difficult. Like, like, the verse I just read to you, the verse 5, look at verse 5. Like, this, this is a, a verse all of us uh, outside of the context would really, really enjoy and like. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told, right? This is, um, I heard one pastor, I listen to sermons, you know, during the week, and sometimes I'll have a chance to listen to other pastors preach on the topic I'm on. And so I was listening to one pastor, and he was saying, this verse, this is the verse that, um, that ignorant college kids put on their t-shirts, right? Like, look, man, God's doing a work in our day. He's awesome. He's amazing. If I told you, you wouldn't even know what he's doing. It's so awesome right? But then you read their context and you're like, what's the rest of the verse say? I'm sending a more violent nation amongst you. You thought the Egyptians were bad? I'm sending the Chaldeans. 
And then he goes on a descriptive rant on what the Chaldeans are. And in the first part of the chapter, Habakkuk literally is saying, there's no justice. And then he says, God's answer to, well, you know, Habakkuk, where's the justice, God? And Habakkuk's answer, God's answering Habakkuk with, well, justice is going to come from a, a group of men that decide what justice is for themselves. They're, they're doing what's right in their own eyes is another way to do it, say it. And so it's not the answer that we necessarily want or that, that, that we desire. Sometimes God says no. Have, have you ever had God say no to you about something? Uh, when, I, when I was first in the school of ministry down in San Diego that I was a part of, and I got outside of, you know, all of, all of the stupidity I was living in college age, I decided... Um, I decided, you know, hey, I really, I want to get married. This is what I want to do. And so I started praying to the Lord that I would get married. And so I just started asking out girls left and right. And they kept saying no. <laughs> like, I think there was a desperation that was coming across uh, that I didn't know was coming across, you know, because I was like, I want to get married. So like literally we'd be like, you know, date one. Uh, so what do you want in life? I want to marry. And then they'd be like, well, this is a little much. Uh, see you never. Um, that, and, and I remember I, I was praying to the Lord, and I was asking God, and this was a true desire of mine. I really, really wanted to be married. And, and so I started seeking the Lord. I started praying to God, much like Habakkuk is doing here. He's praying. He's asking God some questions. And, and I, I, you know, in, this, in my spirit, whatever that's worth to you, I felt like God was talking to me, not audibly, not some kind of magical thing, but God started ministering to my heart, and he just said, you know, Jesse, the answer is no. Uh, you're not going to find a wife anytime soon. And I, I was like, Why? You know, why, Lord? And again, I, I felt like God was speaking to me. And, and he said, Jesse, the reason is because this is the one thing that you were consistently coming to me about. You're coming and you're coming and you're coming. And that's what I want. I want you to come to me. And, and, and quite literally, I felt like the Lord was saying, until you can start seeking me for me and for other things, I'm not going to answer this prayer. Basically, what God was telling me was, uh, it's more important for, for me as your God, as your Savior, uh, to be present with you, to be with you, than to give you what you want. But sometimes God doesn't give us what we want because he wants us to be in his presence. And Habakkuk is now in the presence of God. He has instigated this, this conversation, and God's character begins to be revealed within some of what he's saying. So let's just talk about God's character here for a moment, and then I'm going to try to attempt to answer the question why God says no to us and why no is a good thing when he does say no. So Habakkuk's crying out, and God's answer to Habakkuk crying out to the Lord is, well, you know what? I, I can't really even tell you uh, what I'm doing because you can't imagine what I'm doing. So that's point number one. Here's the first thing we need to understand about God. You can't fathom what God is doing behind the scenes. You, you, there's no way for us to fully grasp or wrap our minds around what God is actually doing behind the scenes. There's a, a really good book I listened to it, I think, last year or the year before. I, I listened to a lot of books instead of uh, reading them um, for several different reasons that I don't need to even tell you about. I don't know why I'm explaining that to you. Um, all you need to know is that I do absorb information from different places. And I'm sure you do too, so congratulations on learning. Yay! Um, Keller, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God, and it's a great book on describing why you believe God. In fact, I, I actually think uh, Keller... One of the things that, that Keller's great for is, is having a conversation rationally, not only biblically, but rationally, why we should believe in the existence of God and the argument for, for belief and faith in God, right? And he says this in The Reason of God. Uh, I'll put it up on the screen for you if you're able to read it. He says, tucked away within the assertion that 
the world is filled with pointless evil is hidden a premise, namely that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. So he's trying to deal with the idea of like, why, why is there evil in the world? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? And he's saying really like, like most of us would say in our culture, in our day and age, you know, evil is pointless. And then he goes on and says, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be one. Again, we see lurking within supposedly hard-nosed skepticism, that is, people who don't believe in God, an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well, then there can't be any. This is blind faith of a high order. Now, what he's basically said is, to not believe in God takes just as much faith as to believe in God, especially within the premise of evil. He's talking about this in the premise of evil, that, that it takes faith either way. And he's saying it takes an enormous amount of cognitive faith in your mind to say, there's no reason, if I can't find a good reason for evil, then there must not be a good reason for evil. This is one of the reasons why people don't believe in God, because they're dealing with what Habakkuk's dealing with. How come there's pain and suffering in the world? That doesn't make any sense, and it rubs against the fact that I believe that God is loving. And one of the things you ask almost anybody in the world today, well, at least in American culture today, hey, is God, what is God like? Almost everyone will say God is loving. But if you ask other cultures, they'll actually bring up the other part of God, that God is wrathful that God is angry. And we don't know, as, like, I, I almost guarantee someone in the room, and if I tell you, if I say this out loud, and I'm going to say it out loud, I'm not going to say it in my mind, that God is wrathful, there are people in the room right now that are not okay with that. I guarantee it. They don't like that. That God's angry. <laughs> no, he's not. He's a loving God. If someone's going to pull me off to the side, sure enough, after the service, and they're going to argue with me that God is loving. God is loving. He is. And the church said, amen. Okay. He is. He's, he's, also, he's also angry at sin. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, that felt good. Um, maybe I won't get pulled off to the side. So the reality is that God is both of these things with intention. Right? Scripture literally actually tells us that before we come to Christ, we're at enmity with God. It literally means that we're an enemy of God. I mean, if you feel like in your life, especially if you're in the room this morning and, and you have not given your life to Christ, and you feel like up until this point that life has just always been against you, it's because it has been that way. God, God is your enemy. If you don't put your faith in him, you're working against the realities of the world. You're, it's, like, it's like trying to swim upstream. Right? You were created to have relationship with Christ, relationship with God. That's the whole intention. I, I, I realized this like, like at a young age, realizing that I couldn't get away with anything. Like, I, I felt guilt. If, if I didn't get caught for something, I'd find myself feeling guilty for it, and then I'd be confessing it to people that didn't even need to know that I was doing those things, you know? Have you, have you, have you just not been able to get away with stuff? It's like, man, no matter what I do, I get caught. I, and it's because God loves you. I, I've, I've shared this uh, probably a couple years ago, uh, the particular passage that talks about how when we turn our backs on God, when we, when we decide not to live according to God's ways— that one of the things that the Bible says that God does is he actually, he lets us go and lets us do whatever we want. And it literally says in scripture that the result of that, the result of that is that we, we trade in our worship, because we've said this before, no one's worship neutral, you're going to worship something. We trade in our worship for the created rather than the creator, right? We turn our eyes to that which has been created and we get our eyes off of 
the creator. And when we do that, God says, okay, fine, I'm going to leave you alone. So a lot of people, when they look at the Old Testament, they go, look at all of these stories of wrath. Well, God was like super, super involved in the people's lives. So when you're following the story of God's people in Genesis, Exodus, and, and so on and so forth, kings, you're seeing God work amongst his people. So God's present with his people, right? So God says, okay, listen, you're my people. I got a special covenant with you. And Habakkuk's one of these guys. He says, you got to have to, we're going to make this covenant. You're going to do certain things. I'm going to do certain things. You got to do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. And if you don't do your thing, I'm going to have to do my thing. And you're not going to like that, right? So you see places in the Bible that are incredibly hard to deal with in the Old Testament where, where the people of Israel don't listen to God and like hundreds of people just die. There's a passage where with Moses where snakes come out and start biting people and killing them. And then later, Moses, to heal him, remember what he does? He, he raises a staff with a, saint, a snake on it, uh, and they say, look to that. You, you ever wonder why in hospitals there's a little snake? In the, you look to that, and you'll be saved. And then later, we know that Christ is the one who's risen up. The same kind of, there's imagery there, and, and we'll be saved through the cross. And we say, okay, wait a minute. How come, because if you're like me, if you're like me, you, you're looking in the world and you're going, just like Habakkuk, how long is, is untruth going to reign? How long is evil going to occur? How long are things going to be backwards and upside down? Right? Our culture, our culture, and you know this, you, you've seen it, our culture literally, literally is, okay, um, we're going to cancel Dr. Seuss. Right? That's got to go away because there's maybe some racial undertones. However, however, we're going to celebrate Cardi B and her newest song. We're going we're gonna, to, this is good, this, Dr. Seuss bad, Cardi B, good. <laughs> and in a situation, you're, you're like, if you're like me again, you're looking, you're like, oh, no, there's no words for it. Is there? And some of you are like, who's Cardi B? Don't Google it. Don't Google it. Don't Google it, Okay. Like, I, I know enough. I don't have to know my Bible, but because God has intervened in my life and he's illuminated my mind, because that's what Jesus does, I can see that that does not make sense. Cardi B is not for the flourishing of mankind. Do you know what the wrath of God is today? The wrath of God isn't, isn't the snakes coming out of the wilderness and biting people anymore. That's not the way that it works any longer. The wrath of God today is to just leave you alone. God's wrath is to just let you do what you want to do. So if you don't have anything convicting you of sin and telling you that something is wrong and challenging you, then it's because God's... The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is to no longer feel conviction of sin in their life. It's the worst thing that can happen, that you could keep doing things and not feel... Because that means that God's wrath is upon you. He's just been like, okay, you said you don't want me. You, 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 you say you don't want my truth. You, you don't want to be told that you're a sinner. You definitely don't want someone to tell you what to do with your body. And the spirit of the age in the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, it's the same today. Like the underlying thing that Paul had to deal with, uh, even amongst the churches, was this idea called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, basically the premise of Gnosticism, which is another form of, of worship, is that what you do with your body doesn't matter. Material doesn't matter. So you can, do with, you can do anything you want with your body. You choose what you want to do with your body. That was, that was the day. You can do anything. You can sleep with prostitutes. You, you, you can dress any way you want. You do whatever you want. It doesn't matter because the body doesn't. All that matters is what's inside. All that matters is the spirit. All that matters is what you feel inside. 
Isn't that the same that we're dealing with today, right? It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It's how you feel inside, right? You want to, if you were born a male, you can feel like you want to be a female or vice versa. It, what you do with your body doesn't matter. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, yes, it does. I've come in the flesh. God in the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. God amongst us, tabernacling amongst us. And then John, who wrote about Jesus and wrote what he saw, what did he say about Jesus? He said, that which we saw, that which we touched, that which we felt, that which we've seen, we've heard, all of it is tactile, right? Because what we do with our body matters to the Lord, right? Are you with me? And so God is concerned with what we believe, and in all this We'll connect back to this quote again. We're going to get back to Habakkuk, trust me. He goes on and he quotes a, another philosopher, uh, Alvin Plantinga, provides an illustration to address, the, to address the flaw in reasoning. So all of what I'm saying, all this brokenness, all, we, what is God doing? Why is it happening? We don't know. What's the reason for evil? He goes on and says, if you look into your pup tent for a St. Bernard and you don't see one, it's reasonable to assume there is no St. Bernard in your pup tent. But if you look into your pump tent for a noceum, anyone know what that is? An extremely small insect with a bite out of, out of proportion to its size, which is super true, and you don't see any, it's reasonable to assume that they are not there. Because after all, no one can see them. Many assume that if there were good reasons to the existence of evil, they would be accessible to our minds, more like a St. Bernard, more than, than, than a noceum. You see what he's saying? He's saying, he's saying that, Basically, what he's saying is you're too small to fathom what God is doing. What God's doing is too big for you. It's too big for your mind. And when he's telling Habakkuk, it's not the answer that he wants. He doesn't want to know Chaldeans are coming. He doesn't want to know more hardship is coming. I mean, let's, let's be really kind of honest for a moment. Brad Beers, a few months ago, preached a great message, and, and he shared something along these lines. I think the whole premise of the message was, was this. What if, what if this hardship that we're dealing with right now is just to prepare us for a darker day. Well, that's popular, right? <clears throat> so this is a true thing. Before the virus hit, there's, you know, there's all these people who do statistical analysis on churches. How many churches close? Um, people of faith walking away from the faith. And so uh, before the virus, it was like, this is what was being said. Listen, churches, Christianity, it's shrinking in the U.S., it's getting smaller. Belief in God is getting smaller. And then some other guys came out and said, wait a minute, no, that's actually true, but not true. So here's the truth. This was all before the virus. Here's the truth. Before the virus, um, they're saying, what's actually happening is the mushy middle is going away. This is what they, they call it, missional guys. It's called the mushy middle. So basically, Christianity is kind of looked at statistically in three terms. And when they say Christianity, they usually are saying evangelical Christianity. Which, which doesn't just include us, Protestant Christians. It also includes Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others. So we kind of get lumped into the thing, which kind of skews the, the stats. But all that to be said is that you've got, you've got people who are inquiring. They're, they're seeking, right? Uh, and, and some of you are in the room this morning, and you're seeking. You're trying to figure out, who is Jesus? Do I want to put my faith in this? Do I really believe what this guy's saying? And the answer to that is, yes, you do, okay? Um, <laughs> And one argument, just aside, Eddie, one argument that I've heard in, in, from people, if you guys continue as a church, you're going to be a bad witness to your community, and you're going to lose your impact for seeing people get saved. I just want you to know we've got more non-Christians coming to our church than ever before. Okay? So that argument doesn't work. 
It, people aren't going to come to people are not going to come to church. They're not going to come to faith for all kinds of reasons. But God is still in the business of saving people, regardless of what you think. Um, so to get back on track, you got those who are seeking. Some of you in the room, and you want to. You're, you're wondering if you should give your 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 life to Jesus. And like I said, the answer to that is emphatically yes. Secondly, you've got the mushy middle. These are individuals who came to church on occasion, really didn't serve, really didn't give, weren't real serious about their faith, but they kind of figured they should do it, right? And then the third group are people who are committed to their faith. Like they come to church, they love Jesus, they read their Bible, they're praying, they know that Jesus is pursuing them, they're doing what they can to pursue him, they know they're not perfect, that's the committed group. And what the statistics were saying, these individuals who do these things said, listen, that group of people that are committed, this is all before the virus, that group's growing, the people who are, the reason Christianity is, is, is bailing is that mushy middle who aren't convinced of God, they're, they're leaving. And they're, now that's all before the virus. You know what the virus did? The virus just took the mushy middle out right now. Like they're gone. They're, they may never come back. And that breaks my heart. It totally breaks my heart because God wants to see people get saved. But what is happening is what the Bible has always intended, which is radical, committed followers of Jesus Christ. That's growing, and it's growing because of persecution on one level or another. Some people would say the church isn't being persecuted, and it it is. It's always been persecuted. The church has always been looked at as radical and weird. We're weirdos, and we admit it, don't we? We got to admit it. We're not normal people. We don't live, we don't like Cardi B. Oh, it makes me weird, right? Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament. Some of you know the life of Joseph is a depiction of how God works behind the scenes to a degree that we can understand. Now, if you remember, Joseph, is, he's, he's a younger brother. He's got older brothers. He's one of the younger brothers, and he has a dream. And in his dream, in his dream, God tells him, your other brothers, your older brothers, they're going to bow down to you, and you're going to be an authority in their life. Okay, now, I would never encourage my, my youngest to walk into the room with his siblings and just say, just so you know, God thinks I'm the best and uh, you're going to bow down to me. Because I'm pretty sure that would end in a, in a horrible thing. And it does. That's what happens in the life of Joseph. It ends horribly uh, for him after, because he, he wakes up, he shares the dream. Listen, guys, you're going to bow down to me. God gave me a dream. His brothers get really jealous of him. What do they do? They throw him in a pit, and they sell him as a slave to Egypt. That's how they respond. Then they go back to their dad, and they tell their dad, hey, sorry, Joseph's dead. Okay, so then Joseph, he, he, he goes, he's a slave. As a slave, he has an opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's in charge. He has an opportunity to sleep with Potiphar's wife, but he runs, leaves his cloak behind him and runs, and Potiphar's wife tells basically a lie, and Joseph ends up in prison. So it's not going well for him, right? He has a dream. God told him, listen, great things are going to happen. And then the answer to the dream is slavery and being thrown in a pit, and then in prison, and, and he's in prison literally because he did the right thing. God, where are you? What are you doing? How come? And then later, the king has a dream. Joseph's known for being able to interpret dreams, so Joseph's brought forth before the king, and essentially Joseph has a dream that, that, that seven years of famine are coming after seven years of plenty, and because of Joseph, the king of Egypt puts in place a, a, a way to store and stockpile. You can even see this in excavation in, in Egypt today, to store and stockpile all of the grain and wheat for seven years of famine. Because of this, Joseph finally is lifted up. He becomes the number two guy in charge of Egypt. And during famine, he's basically the guy who's in charge of dispersing all of the food to the people in need. And guess who's in need? 
his brothers. So his family comes to Egypt, unbeknownst to them that Joseph is in charge. They don't know. They don't even recognize Joseph at first. They finally recognize him. They're there. They're there to be saved by their brother. The prophecy, the dream has come true. They're bowing down to him. They don't even know that it's him. And then they finally recognize that it's him. And Joseph reveals himself. And in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, you know what? What you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And then he comforted him. See the grace? The grace of this man and the salvation of this man. There's, he literally saying, you don't see, you can't see what God is doing. This is God's answer. Sometimes God answers our prayers in this way. You just, you just can't understand what I'm doing. Um, last night, a family in our church, her, her name's Laura Schroeder. She asked me to uh, just mention her and, and that she needs prayer and her family needs prayer. She's just going through it. It's been hard. It's been a long difficulty. It, it's been a struggle of health, and if you can remember, please pray for her. She, she needs it. And I, I was thinking about her uh, during this message, and, 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 you know, she's cried out for help. She's cried out for help to the Lord. She's cried out to help from her church. She's cried out to help from her friends. And she isn't necessarily getting the answers that, that she wants, but God knows her. And if you notice, one thing that, that, jo, that, that Habakkuk's not doing in the midst of his trial is he's not running away. He's praying. And what I find beautiful to know is that when you yell out to the Lord and you're crying out in your frustration, God does not look down at you and say, what are you doing? You know, God's not looking at Laura right now and going, I can't believe that you don't have enough faith. I can't believe that she knows all the right answers. Sometimes we know the answers, don't we? Sometimes we have all of the answers. It's just not enough in that moment. And we're broken and, and we're ruined and we feel like life is falling down around us. And God, he... He just takes us in. He just invites us into his presence. Again, uh, another author, he says, on one hand, Habakkuk is challenging God. What are you doing here, Lord? He's asking questions. He's struggling with doubts. And on the other hand, he never hints. The thought never enters into his mind. There's never an option for him to walk away from God or to stop obeying God or to stop praying to God or to stop following God. It's not even an option for him. But notice how he's dealing with it. He's not blogging about it. He's not writing about it. He's not even talking about it. He's praying. Like, are we known for praying? Are we a people group that, 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 you know, one of the things that bothers me about social media, and there's a ton that bothers me about social media, but one of the things that bothers me about social media in particular is that Christians have made themselves to look like clowns on social media. The world knows what we don't like politically because you're putting it on your Facebook page. They know you don't like certain things. They know what kind of beliefs you have. But do they know that you're a person in the presence of God? Like, why aren't we sharing that? That it's about presence with God, pursuing God, being pursued by God. I'm not comforted by what you believe about the president. I'm not. But I am comforted to know that you've placed your faith in Christ in the midst of brokenness and hardship. Right? Where are the people who are going to stand boldly and say, God is good. God is great. I'm going to worship him and pursue it. I'm not fearful of anything because I know that my faith is made sure in Christ, that my life has been sealed for eternity by the Holy Spirit. The gift that God has given me, I am guaranteed an eternal life of peace and joy and happiness. I mean, there's a passage, John chapter 6, verse 66. I think it's interesting 
I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but John 6.6.6. And in that particular passage, it says this. After this, after this, and that is to say, after these hard sayings of Christ. Right? This is on the heels of Jesus saying some things that were not popular and hard to hear. And in John 66, it says, after he had said these things, after he had done these things, many of his disciples turned their backs on him and no longer walked with him. The mushy middle bailed. See, Jesus had, mushy, had the mushy middle too. And as soon as things got hard, as soon as the pastor, which is Jesus at the time, said something they didn't like, people bailed. They walked away. And so Jesus is heartbroken, and he says to his 12, the ones that are really committed, and he says to them, do you guys want to go away as well? I mean, you imagine, I know he's God, and he sees things eternally, and he's asking the question more for their benefit than his, but he, I can see and sense his heart is broken. I, I'm your Savior. These people have bailed on me. They've walked away from me. I'm going to give my life to them. Are, are, are you going to leave too? And then, of course, Peter's the guy who answers, and it would carry more weight if it wasn't Peter, but he says, Lord, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of life. Right? I mean, it's okay to call out to God, to cry out to God, but we need to wrestle with God. See, the character of God is revealed. We can't understand what he's doing, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be wrestling with God with our doubts and our, our, our questions. Christianity over the years in some sectors, in some places, have, have not done your faith a service in letting you know that it's not okay to question God. It is okay to question God. It's not okay to stay there forever. By no means, but it's okay to wrestle with them. I mean, if you, if you look at Psalm 88 and Psalm chapter 39, as well as many other Psalms, like David in some of these Psalms, like David, some of his Psalms literally at the end of him praying out to God are like, he literally says, God, don't look at me anymore. What, what, like, get out of here, Lord. I can't, I can't handle you right now. Right? I just can't deal with you right now, Lord. The other day, um, not that long ago, we, we've got a beautiful, you know, I've, I've shared with you about him before. David, he's our youngest son. Um, I always forget if he's four or five. He's going to be, he's going to be six in August, right? <laughs> Did it get hot in here? <laughs> uh, forgive me. I love you, and I love my kids. I do. So now I look bad. Now, now I'll share the rest of the story. So he, he comes running into the room, and we have a reading room and a, a living room. I'm in the living room. Allie's in the reading room. I she can't remember what she was doing, dealing with the other kids or something. And David comes running in, and he's just in tears. He's brokenhearted. He didn't do anything to me, so I'm, I'm there to embrace him, right? So I go, what's going on, buddy? What's Hey, what's going on? He just looks at me, tears. He says, Mom can't handle me right now. <laughs> so I know at some point Allie said, Go talk to your dad. I can't handle you right now. <laughs> and so he goes, She can't handle me. And literally, this is what some of the Psalms are like God, I can't handle you right now. I, I can't. And sometimes we're like that with Christians. I can't, I can't handle you right now. There's these prayers of wrestling, faithful wrestling with God. An old British, uh, Old Testament British scholar, Derek Kidner, talks about these prayers, and he says this, these prayers, these prayers that we find in the Bible of wrestling with God, along with Peter's statement to Jesus, depart from me, O Lord. There's a place where Peter literally says that to Jesus, which is crazy. But the very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. Did you hear that? The very presence of such prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. 
He knows how we speak when we're desperate. God knows your heart. He knows you. Which is the second comforting thing that we really find is not only, I think it's a comfort that we don't know what God is doing. I really, I don't think you can handle it. I don't think I can handle it. There's a lot of things that have happened in my life that I would not have chosen. But because God chose them for me, I'm a better person because of that, right? And, and it comes around to being filled with faith, knowing that God's going to do it. And so we, we see that, that there's a faith in God that goes beyond our own understanding that we have to have. And literally, the Bible has that verse, right? Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge the Lord. Don't lean on what you know, because your mind is too small to fathom infinity. But then we see some real gracious things here. The first gracious thing I want you to see that is quite amazing is that, that God meets people in brokenness, and he answers Habakkuk. I mean, that can be lost on us. God answered him. I mean, he's literally, God, what are you doing? He's literally saying, he's basically saying what many of us have done today. God, if I was in charge, I would do it differently. If I was president, make me ruler of Rome for a day. You know, I'll fix the world. I mean, all of us are really good at spectator leadership, aren't we? Now, I, I'm, I've been in leadership for several years, so I know what it's like to make decisions and have to really live with the consequences of those decisions, right? And it's all kinds of fun when somebody doesn't have to bear those consequences and they like to tell you how you should do things. Just for those of you who like to do that. It's a bad idea to do it. And yet, God answers him and he speaks to him that's gracious. He doesn't take Habakkuk behind the barn and say, how dare you? What are you doing? No, he answers him. Here's the thing you have to understand. God hears us in our doubts and in our cries. You remember when we went through Exodus? We were in Exodus for several months, and literally when God shows up on the scene to, to free the people, he says, I've seen their affliction and I've heard their cries. I've heard them. There's all kinds of other verses, the one with Ishmael and, and his mom, that God hears their cries because God is present he's everywhere and he knows us i think that's something that sometimes that that we i deal with with people when they're trying when they're first coming to faith they wrestle with feeling like like can i really can god really love me i i sat down uh with dinner with a guy one time and i had asked him uh he had given his life to the lord and i'd asked him if he was ready to be baptized, which is something you should do in your faith. It's one of the first things you should do. And I said, hey, how come you haven't been baptized? And he got choked up, and he started to tear up, and he said, I don't know that I'm good enough yet. You're never going to be good enough. That's why, he, that's why he came. That's why he died. That's why he did what he did, because you're never going to be good enough. He makes you good enough, even in you're not good enough. Right? He blankets you in his righteousness, and he loves you, and he sees you as completely pure. He knows you. I mean, let me show you this verse here. I think it's quite incredible. Psalm 8.3. When I look at your heavens and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Just to stop there. But he's saying, literally, David's outside, looking outside, looking at the wonders of nature, sees the moon, sees the mountains, and he's like, this is incredible. This is the fingertips of God who have made these things. Right before the virus hit, my wife and I, uh, we were lucky enough to take our kids. Right before the virus hit, I think we went in January 
Uh, don't ask me how old my kids were because I don't know, but it was last year. <laughs> right around January, and um, we're pretty sure that we had the virus in Disneyland. So we're the reason LA shut down, which is a big bummer for them. But. So we got Disneyland, and then after that, I think it was on the heels that maybe before, we went to, we got, we went to Hawaii uh, with our staff because we had a conference. It's part of our district, and so we had to bear the burden of going to Hawaii for the district. We spent one of the days... Um, uh, snorkeling, and by the way, Brad is a snorkel diving fiend. He loves it. If you want to bless him, just take a <laughs> Brad says, send him to Hawaii. I say, no, send me to Hawaii. Um, so we're there, and I can't remember what beach it was, but just beautiful beach, beautiful ocean, you know, you, as far as the eye can see. And then right behind us is this massive mountain, massive mountain, just filled with lush green, you know, just beautiful. And it's one of those moments, right, where you're there and you're like, you see that and you're like, man, I'm sure all of us have had those moments. I don't know if you ever do this, but on the drive to Reno, like I grew up here in Truckee, so it's lost on me sometimes how magnificent that drive from here to Reno really is. I mean, there's parts of the freeway that if, if you get sucked up in the scenery, you can just fly right off the edge. And just, right? It's just beautiful. And, and David's like, he sees this. The psalmist sees this. He's like, man, look at this. You did this. You did it with your fingertips. And then the kicker comes. Verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor and you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. He's like, wait, this is so crazy. He's looking at the beauty of nature and he's like, God, why did you put people in charge of this beautiful stuff? Right? I mean, just so you know, that's a commandment for us to care about our world. Right? It matters. The physical matters. The body matters. The world matters. Now, however you take that is, is a whole other conversation, but we, we, should, we should care about the flourishing of humanity. Like the church should exist not just for Christians itself, but for the flourishing of the community as a whole. Right? And so he says, what is this? You know man, and yet you put man in charge? Psalm 139.1 says, Lord, you search me. You know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all together. That's frightful. You hem me in behind me, before me. You lay your hands on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? It's like I can't. There's nowhere to run from the Lord. He's there. He's here. He's everywhere. There's no running from the presence of God. In fact, Luke tells us later, Jesus says, I know every hair on your head. I know how many hairs you have. It's an easy count for me, obviously, but he knows. And the, the kicker here is that God's, God's saying, like, hey, I, I know you. I love you anyways. And I'm committed to you. I'm radically committed to you. And I'm going to pursue you no matter what. And now God's saying, listen, if you felt that presence, if you felt that pursuing of God, and you have felt him work in your life, even in difficulty and pain, even in questioning, he's saying, pursue me back. Run after me. Chase me. And know that, that, that in this relationship, as you pursue me, I'm going to understand you, but please don't think that I'm always going to say yes to you. Right? Sometimes, sometimes God says no because he loves you. The reason God says no to you sometimes is because he loves you. And that's what you need to hear. Again, to quote Keller, um, he wrote another book on prayer. It's a pretty good book. It's kind of hard to read in the beginning, but um, it, the rest of it's actually pretty good. It's actually really good. I can't write books, so it's really good. 
way better than I could do, as if I'm some, whatever. Um, but he says this, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want them to be answered if you knew everything he knew. A lot of us are like, man, Lord, you know, I, I would do it differently. And God's like, <laughs> not if you knew what I knew. Well, let me just talk to you a few reasons why I think God says no, in addition to him loving you. Number one, sometimes God says no, as I mentioned earlier, because you're not present with him. Sometimes God doesn't say yes because he wants you to seek and knock. I mean, Scripture literally says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. It's presence. Prayer is not about prayer itself. Prayer is a reminder that you're present with God. One of the reasons we close our eyes when we pray is that we can envision this reality that we're in the presence of God. Okay, we don't do it just to, it's to shut our eyes off away from that which is physical for a moment to be with that which is spiritual. The second reason sometimes God says no is because we lack obedience. We don't have a submitting faith to God. 1 John 3.21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments. Do you hear it? We, we ask and we get because there's obedience. If, if I heard one pastor say, if you're bitter and angry and resentful, jealous or proud, you should not expect to hear many yeses from the Lord. Right? The obedience matters to God. It does. First uh, Peter, this is a good one for husbands. I like to pick on the guys every now and then. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives with understanding. Ooh, oof. that's hard. Not for me, though. I'm great. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Just to be clear, because it's a cultural thing, doesn't mean that she's weaker as a person or less as a person. The word there, literally there is like porcelain. She, she's valuable. Since they are heirs with you, that's equality, right? We're the same with the grace of life. And he says this. You have to understand your wife, love your wife, live with her in an understanding way, so men that your prayers may not be hindered. And then later in verse 12, it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Right, guys, your prayers can be hindered just simply because your relationship with people is off. Sometimes God just says no because you're not present with him, you're not obedient with him, your relationship is off. That doesn't mean you need to be perfect because sometimes God answers beautifully yes, even in moments of disobedience, doesn't he? I've had some major blessings in my life, and I didn't deserve, I don't deserve any of those blessings. So then we have to answer the question, okay, well, if that's the case, why does God say no? I've, I've already given you one of the answers, uh, because he loves you. But we also know that he says no sometimes, and this is the whole theme of the message, right? Like, you can't fathom it. You just don't know what he's doing. You have to trust that God is good, and you look to the cross for that. But we also know this. We may never fully know what he's doing, right? But we do know that if there is pain and suffering, it can't mean that he doesn't love us. Because he does love us. Completely. That's why we look to the cross, where he died for us. That's why we're going to celebrate Easter, the reality that he resurrected from the dead. And it can't mean that he's unconcerned with us. Because he is very much involved in everyday life. Did you know that? You know, he, he is involved in ordinary things. I was having a great conversation um, last night uh, with a friend, and, and we were talking about this reality of how sometimes it can feel like, I mean, have you ever felt like the things you're doing don't matter? Has anyone ever felt that way? Thank you, Anka. I'm just going to talk to you now, okay? Um, yeah, and... and I was telling this individual, I said, you know, because we were in this 
just even this here, what we're doing here. But we were, last night was at a big bonfire thing and everyone was hanging out and having a great time. And, um, and I told him, I said, hey, you know, most of my time is spent in this back room over here. Well, I told you it's the Holy Holies back here, but it isn't. It's an office with some weird chairs in it. You should see it. And if you've been in there, you know, they're weird. They're a conversation piece. But um, 90% of my time, nobody knows what I'm doing. Nobody cares. Like, nobody sees. But it's just that Monday, like, like tomorrow morning, and this is my rhythm of life, tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to deal with what they call, for most pastors, Black Monday. It's called Black Monday. Because a lot of pastors feel very depressed on Mondays. And the way that I have dealt with that depression over the years, and it's a real deal, is I just get my butt up on a Monday morning, and I go right back to work. And I start reading, and I start studying, and I start getting ready for the next sermon. And I found this is the best. The, Worst thing I could do is stay at home and sit on the couch and watch TV and check. It's the worst thing I can do for me. I got to get, and, and then slowly but surely, I'll start to feel better on Friday. <laughs> and and th- there's some truth to that, but not totally. But I was telling him like, hey, all that faithful stuff, nobody sees, but because of those faithful small things that God is in, this community is here in part because of that. Right? You've got to do these small, faithful things, being faithful to God, knowing that he's involved. This is all I'm trying to say. God's involved in all the little things that nobody sees. And it does pay dividends. If what you feel like you're doing is small, you have to be reminded that it's not. He is completely involved in all the little stuff. I mean, I know what my wife does every day for homeschool. Man, it is, it is constant. Week in, week out, difficulty and struggling. I talked to the parent about it today, about how hard it is. Thank God for faithful moms and dads who are plugging away with their kids day after day and week after week to teach them whatever it is that you need to teach them. Even if you're teaching them how not to do things, you're teaching them, right? God is in those things. And then ultimately, we have to look in the big picture of Habakkuk, the big picture of the Bible. We know ultimately all the pain, all the suffering, all the hurt, all the no's, will be undone and made new. Everything will be created anew. There's a great line from J.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings. Gandalf says, Samwise Gamgee, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? I mean, you see the sense, what's happened to the world? But I, I love the question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? The answer is emphatically yes. Now, let me close with, with this, okay? Big picture. Habakkuk sees his people. He loves his people. Even though they're broken and they're worshiping false gods, he loves them. He's crying out to the Lord, and he should be. He's wrestling with God. God's talking to him. And God says, you know, you're not going to understand what I'm doing, but I'm sending a greater army. They're violent. They're proud. They're going to overtake you, and they're going to ruin you. And I know you don't understand this, and I know you don't like it. But if we look now all the way into the New Testament, here's the crazy thing about what we've just read, the crazy thing about what's happened in Habakkuk. Because of the dispersion and because of the enslavement and the the captivity and and the hardship and the ugliness that we read in Habakkuk amongst God's people, it caused God's people to be spread across all of the Roman Empire. They were literally scattered. They call it the, the dispersion. Because of persecution and hardship and violence, the Jews were spread out all over the known world. So then a guy who's a Pharisee gets saved. His name's Paul. Paul gets saved and he's like, all of my people need to know the good news 
that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. So because of the dispersion, Paul's got to go on missionary trips to go spread the whole gospel to the entire world. There was no way for Habakkuk to understand you have to suffer this violence so that one day there'll be people in Truckee, California worshiping my name. It's too great a thing for you to get. But because God used violence against his people, we're here not suffering violence. In fact, it could be argued that the world is less violent place because of this particular thing that happened. But who would have thought? And likewise for us, as we leave this place and we go through our hard stuff and we go through our difficulty and we go through our travail, are you going to necessarily know why? <laughs> no one can tell you that. But what you can trust is there will be fruit from it. People will come to Jesus because of it. And as you suffer, that's what it means to suffer well. I know, Lord, someone's going to be saved at some point in the history of the world. My mind is too small to fathom. But I trust you, Lord. I put my faith in your hands. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a wonderful day and a wonderful opportunity to be with your people to share your word. I pray, Lord, that you continue to draw men to yourself, continue, Lord, to bring people here who don't know you, that they'll come to know you. And I pray for those individuals, Lord, that are seeking, they're wondering. I just pray, Lord, that they would right now realize that they can have an intimate saving faith with you by just simply confessing the reality that they're in need of you. And, and Lord, they need forgiveness of their sins and they need a relationship with you. And they are tired of worshiping a world that tells them that the acts of Cardi B are somehow okay. Lord, I pray that they would right now in faith say, Jesus, come be one with me that I may be one with you and that they would then choose to live a life of obedience to you from here on out. Because, Lord, you're worth it. Being with you is worth it. Thank you for the work you're doing in our church. It's not lost on us, Lord. And I pray that our light would shine forth in such a way that it will continue to grow your kingdom. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand as we celebrate the truth.